0: Welcome back. The City of Toronto has measures
1: in place to mitigate the risk of a heat wave on residents of apartment buildings and condos. So let's go to Brad Ross, Chief Communications Officer for the City of Toronto. Hi, Brad. Hi. Good afternoon, Libby. So uh, we're seeing this really unprecedented extreme heat wave in BC. We don't have that here, but boy, it's been plenty hot. Humidex of forty yesterday.
2: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, extremely, uh, extremely warm yesterday. Uh, some rain, uh, lots of it. Of course, uh, provided some relief. Um, and uh, and it is uh, you know is this reason why you know in the summer that. Uh, the city continually um, updates its uh, its heat relief uh, strategy um, across the city, um, particularly for those who uh, are, are most vulnerable, whether those experiencing homelessness or uh, people living in apartments, uh, seniors, for example, who uh, live in apartment buildings uh, that may not have uh, air conditioning in them. So we have a number of, of, of programs and, and requirements, frankly, for landlords to ensure that their tenants um know where there's where there are cooling centers when there is a, a heat warning called uh and and how to seek some relief from the heat uh, in their own apartment building
1: um and uh other uh other than the cooling centers is is there anything you have in in place for people in their own homes when they don't have air conditioning
2: so what what is required uh is that that landlord's uh post um notices in their building about the nearest uh, cool space that might be near um, where people live. It doesn't have to be an emergency cooling center, for example. It may be a mall. Now, of course, with COVID-19, uh, we we have some, um, you know, some challenges with, with respect to uh, the types of facilities that are open. And so um, not everything has reopened, as we all know. So uh, we've had to amend that slightly. Um, and there are limits on those things that are open. Absolutely. Yes. So malls, for example, uh, are an excellent way to escape libraries. So uh, with reopening, we're seeing more and more uh, facilities and community centers and the like that are reopening to to provide some relief. Um, But um, and, and, and so as I say, you know tenants um, uh, landlords must uh, let tenants know where some of these spaces are um, as well as uh, if they are able to provide a um, a space within their own apartment building that is air conditioned or cool so that um, that their tenants can get some relief uh, you know very close to home for example we also ask people to you know to check on their their friends their neighbors their family who uh, they know it uh, may be vulnerable to, uh, to to the extreme heat, and uh, to make sure that they're doing okay and uh, that they're staying hydrated and the like. So, uh, there's a number of things that we can do generally as 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 you know residents of the city to help uh, uh, our friends and neighbors and of course our family.
1: Uh, now, I recall a, a couple of years back there was a deadly heat wave in Montreal, and it wouldn't have been the city that organized it but they did have uh, paramedics and other professionals uh, checking on people who are particularly vulnerable.
2: Mm-hmm. So that is something that that you know that we absolutely will do with um, with 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 staff here through senior services and and through 211 for example. So anybody any senior for example um who who needs for example um a ride to a cooling center can call 211. Um, or need some food or, or 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 other supplies that they're unable to get because, for example, it just may be simply too warm to venture out. They can call two one one. Our streets to homes uh, teams and uh, Fred Victor do check on uh, do wellness checks routinely on people, for example, living outside, making sure that they're hydrated. Um, but as I say, you know, we, we all have a some collective. Um, perhaps responsibility to make sure that those we know who are vulnerable are we 're checking in on them, and that, as I say, landlords have some responsibility as landlords to make sure that their tenants are doing well uh, as well um, certainly if we if we you know ever reach that point libby where we 're seeing you know prolonged days of of extreme heat like they're seeing out west, um, the city would, uh, would certainly, um, you know, have a look at, at what more we need to do to ensure that those who are most vulnerable are, uh, are, be, are being looked after. And not unlike the homebound program for vaccination that we currently have underway with uh, Toronto Paramedic Services and, uh, and, and Sunnybrook uh, as partners.
1: Yeah, um the other thing is and and this crops up almost every summer for people uh, who are renters and have apartments with no air conditioning. A lot of people want different standards, different requirements uh that landlords would have to provide this are are we anywhere on
2: that? You mean like a a sort of a, a you know a building code type, right uh, a minimum like we have for heat uh, in the winter um I, I couldn't speak to that libby, in terms of of where that might be um it it would as I say, it's, it may be an Ontario Building Code, you know, sort of minimum standard. I think, you know, um, you know, building new, there, there may be some opportunity there to ensure that you know that becomes a, a standard um, of uh, of building. But uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm I'm not equipped with that information at my fingertips. But I know it is something that gets gets spoken of from time to time. Where it currently stands, I I couldn't say right now. Well,
1: I think sorry. it doesn't stand anywhere, but it it is something that. Uh, tenants call for on a regular basis for when sure. this uh, crops up.
2: Uh, Brad, what would you like to leave us with on this? Well, you know, I, I think um, to to really just... Um make sure that 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 you're staying hydrated uh there are a number of tips uh on on the city's website for example at toronto.ca about how to stay cool um you know we have a an interactive map uh, online as well that is very helpful in terms of where there are cool spaces where there are where there might be some relief for for families for example with small children the splash pads that may be near them uh waiting pools our pools are all open of course and the beaches as well so um and and just you know Stay cool um, and, uh, and and stay well and um, and you know this uh, uh, the, the extreme heat does come and go of course and when there is a heat alert called uh, or heat warning rather called by Environment and Climate Change Canada um, then we will open up our cooling centers one of which is twenty four hours and that's at Metro Hall.
1: Okay, Brad Ross, thank you so much for being with
2: us. All the best, Libby. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye.
1: People, tomorrow is. Canada Day. I'm going to be back here and it is going to be a very controversial Canada Day. We have a lot of people calling for Canada Day to be cancelled. Frankly, a lot of it was cancelled already because of the pandemic. And some people are saying, well, it should just be a different Canada Day where we should reflect on, you know, those terrible discoveries that have been made in the last few weeks of the unmarked graves of Indigenous children. So what do you think of that? I Know that our listeners have uh, quite a few opinions on it. Should Canada Day be canceled? How are you marking Canada Day? Uh, should it be a time of re- reflection, or is this still a wonderful country? And, and are you going to celebrate to the extent that you can? We're a little reopened now. So uh, we'll be tackling all of that back here tomorrow, and we will be very keen to hear from you uh, on your views on that right now. That's all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Western Canada is in the midst of an unprecedented extreme heat wave that included the highest temperature ever recorded in Canada 46.5? Or did they even surpass that yesterday? Experts are blaming a phenomenon called a heat dome. And the disaster there has caused at least 230 reported deaths. So what exactly is a heat dome and could it make its way to Ontario? I'm joined now by David Phillips, Senior Climatologist for Environment Canada. David, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Oh, you're so welcome, Libby. Nice to be with you.
1: Uh, what is a heat dome?
3: Well, it's like taking the Rogers Center and sticking it over a piece of geography that stretches from the Arctic Circle to uh, to Death Valley. Uh, just uh, just a big, huge bubble or lid. Uh, and um, and what happens, Libby, inside that that dome um, is that the air sinks. It's uh, it's a, it's what we call a ridge, an upper upper ridge, and it sinks. It squeezes all the air below it and it comes from where jet aircraft fly so really high up in the atmosphere and pushes right down to the surface and so when it squeezes all that air that air just jiggles and jaggles as air molecules just bump together create heat and that heat accumulates and 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 it just it stays put. it doesn't there's no weather or winds to get in there to push it away it just grows increasingly warm and stressful now at the same time some of that sun's energy that comes in and bakes the ground and warms the air well, it sometimes can evaporate the water, and but the problem is we're not see very much precipitation during the springtime there in western Canada, and as a result, all of that sort of solar heat is just, or solar energy is going to heat the air and doesn't cool the atmosphere by evaporation. So it's sort of a double whammy, and... Uh, And it's very slow motion uh, type. You know, we get heat waves here in eastern Canada where the, like we are just in the last couple of days where the air from the Gulf of Mexico surges northward. It comes through heat heat and humidity and then eventually it moves off maybe three days. Uh, then some cool Canadian air comes back and turn off your air conditioning and life is great. But out there, that dome is like a bully. It's like a, like a sumo wrestler just standing there and, and defies kicking out.
1: Um, David, does the dome move, or can it move?
3: Uh, yes, it does. Inches, uh, maybe eastward. The prevailing winds in uh, in Canada are from west to east, so it begins to move further east. But so slow Libby I mean we're probably seeing comforting breezes in Vancouver Victoria now but in the interior we' probably not as hot as it has been but the heat will begin to move over to Alberta Saskatchewan and into parts of Manitoba maybe even Northern Ontario before it kind of is all diminished and diffused and and by maybe July the 4th or fifth it'll be it'll be
1: history Oh, okay. So you don't think that it's going to come here?
3: No, no, I don't think so. We might see some effect in northwestern Ontario, but I think it's pretty well will be spent by the time we get there. And uh, I, I see, no, it's not going to be a heat dome sitting over Toronto. Now, we can get those from the Bermuda High that sometimes comes over there and sits, and and that can give us those warm kinds of days. But um, but this one, no, I don't think it's going to make it all the way uh, to Ontario to to southern Ontario. Now,
1: did you get a warning? Did you know a few days in advance that this was oh, happening? Yeah, you can
3: see it coming, you know. It's, it's how do you prepare for something like this where, you know, it's, you just don't have the infrastructure to handle it, you say. So, no, it was clearly and about two weeks ago. It was in down in California and Utah and Idaho, Nevada, Colorado. And so. Uh, so it was really warm there. And then it just began to drift northward and set up over the Pacific and then move to the cross the mountains and into British Columbia. And so it's anchored there over British Columbia and Southern Alberta, Northwestern part of the United States. And, and then it begins its slow trek, but it's massive. It's just like a, a, a giant bubble that, that covers a lot of geography and, and it's, uh, it's very, it blocks all the weather systems. No weather systems can get in the way. And, and they're all weak compared to this sucker. So it, um, it really is the dominant, uh, player on the weather map.
1: Um, I don't recall ever uh, encountering something like this. Is, is it new? Is it something we should expect more of?
3: Yeah, Libby. I think we should. I mean, it's, you're right. It's, it's, it's unprecedented for, I mean, we broke an all-time record, a national record that stood for 84 years, and Yellowgrass, Saskatchewan, in the dirty 30s, it got up to 45 degrees well, this one has literally smashed that previous record. We're at 49.6. I mean, Libby. That's, that's within seven degrees of the warmest moment in the planet Earth, Death Valley, California, 1919. So it is, it is uh, unprecedented historical. I mean, and it's covering all of that area. We're just smashing records. We've broken 400 records in the last four days. Wow. I mean, that is just unbelievable. And, and, and some of them are, as I say, all-time records, not just the warmest, you know, June 28th or 29th, but never seen a warmer moment in the history. And this is, of course, a month before we really get to the dog days of summer, which typically occur at the end of July and the early August. So to answer your question, is it going to see it? Yes. You know, that's the thing. Weather repeats itself. So you're likely to see, um, this come back. It may not take 83 years. It might just take five years or 10 years. But I think this is really, uh, almost the, uh, the opening act to, to what we're going to see more of. I mean, we're a cold country, a snowiest country in the world. And we typically talk about frostbite and uh, wind chill. Well, I mean, I think we're going to talk about these excruciating warm temperatures in the years to come. Uh,
1: before I let you go, can you give us an idea what uh, what do you expect for our weather here in Ontario this summer? Yeah. We saw, we've saw we already seen very hot temperatures. We have these torrential storms, uh, more of the same or what? Yeah,
3: I think so it's always what weather you see is what you're going to get. And I think our models show from Vancouver to uh, Bonavista and Newfoundland, we see warmer than normal. So I don't think it'll be as warm as last year, uh, Libby, when we had, I think, 35 days where the temperature got above 30. Uh, normal would be about 15. So we had almost you know, double what we had more than last year. So I don't think it'll be as excruciatingly warm, but we've had a few teasers already. We've had, I think, uh, in uh, in uh, uh, this month, we've had about 10 days above or 8 days above 30. So that clearly is more than we normally would see. So I think uh, July and August are always warmer than June, so I think we're more of the same. But, hey, hopefully not as excruciatingly warm as we're seeing out west.
1: Okay, David Phillips, thank you so much for being with us.
3: Okay, Libby, bye-bye
1: now. Bye-bye. Well, in BC, most of the victims of the heat wave, as we said, are seniors who live alone without air conditioning. And there are many, many people in that cohort here in Ontario and the rest of the country. And while it's not been that hot, it's been plenty hot without air, conditioner, air conditioning. So um, what should you do to stay safe? And what are the signs that you or a loved one is in trouble? from heat stroke Uh, let me give the numbers out in case you have questions or comments 416-360-0740 toll free 1-866-740-4740 and now let's get some advice from dr iris gorfinkel a family physician and founder of prime health clinical research hi iris Hello there, Libby. So, uh, you know, I know your office is in an area where there are a lot of high rises. Uh, Do you have patients who fit that description? Seniors who live alone, maybe without air conditioning? It's super concerning.
4: Our building, it's a medical building, if you can believe, had no air conditioning two days ago. None. And on the fifth floor where I am, it became extremely hot. You know, so, and here I am in the full PPE, as you can imagine, It wasn't poison. So the thing about it is, as the body tries to cool itself, as people understand, I mean, what happens? We sweat, and we can sweat a lot. And the sweat contains sodium. It contains a lot of sodium. That's why sweat tastes salty. But it also has things like potassium and calcium and magnesium. But what can happen? If the body is not able to cool itself adequately, we can move to something called heat exhaustion. So we're sweating and sweating and sweating away and the, the skin naturally is wet, it's clammy, the body's trying to cool itself and our our pulse can become a little faster, it can actually get a little weaker and and then we start getting certain symptoms and those symptoms should not be ignored. nausea, vomiting, muscle cramps. So why do these things happen? They happen because we've sweat so much, we're dehydrated, or you know the electrolyte balance is off and muscles start cramping.
1: And oh, Iris, I just lost you for the last uh, few words. Um, now I've heard advice for people. Uh, you know, if you don't have air conditioning and you're getting hot, go go sit in in a tub with some cool water for a while. What else should people do?
4: Absolutely. So that's one way. But cooling from the inside is also important. So drinking cool fluids, not just water, but potentially sport drinks, that can help. And make sure you reach out. This is the social part of things. To have people connecting with you regularly, checking in on you. Friends can do that for friends. Have a mutual thing going. And a time that everyone's agreed on to be called so that if somebody is confused, So if somebody is experiencing bad symptoms, that can be recognized, and that person can be taken to help. When, Uh, um, Yeah, is confusion a a symptom? Absolutely. So confusion is a bad sign. As the body fails to cool itself properly through sweating, what can happen? It literally runs out of sweat, and the skin can become dry. That's one of the first signs of not heat exhaustion moving into something called heat stroke. And now the body's temperature is beginning to rise, and it can get very, very hot. So the skin becomes hot. Instead of cool and and wet, it becomes dry and hot. And the pulse is all of a sudden strong, bounding pulse. Those are signs of heat stroke, headache, dizziness, the nausea, the confusion, and ultimately passing out. And that's a serious problem. And these are reasons to all call 911. This is not a time to try to give somebody some cool water to drink simply because the person can choke on it. They're not fully conscious at this point. And giving water to drink can actually be dangerous in times of heat stroke. Do you think
1: it's particularly dangerous because <clears throat> we're still in the midst of the pandemic when people are spending a lot of time alone, especially older people, even though many of them are vaccinated now?
4: Absolutely. And plus, there's a mixed messaging, right? Because on the one hand, we're told, oh, you can't take that box sand and turn it towards your face. The air conditioner should not be turned toward your face because we're worried about the spread of aerosols, especially within tall buildings. Aerosols are tiny particulate viral particles that could be hanging around in the air, kind of like cigarette smoke. And we know that the novel coronavirus, can, in fact, spread that way. So how do you reconcile that? Do you point the fan towards your face? I say, darn right you do. If you're hot and, you know, at risk of having heat exhaustion, then by all means, you have to cool down in every way you can. That is much more of an immediate danger rather than the potential danger. And the relatively small one now that so many of us have been vaccinated of getting the novel coronavirus that way. Well, and
1: especially if you're in your own apartment with your own fan,
4: right? Yeah. I mean, what do you do? You you wet your body, take a towel, wet it, drape it over yourself. You can even wet the clothes that you're in. That makes a difference. Keep hydrated. Have someone check in on you. You know, you can't take it for granted. A lot of people are like, they want to play the tough role. They want to say, okay, I'm not going to have anybody check in on me. I'm going to be fine. But, Doing it for somebody else is a good way of having it done back to you. Call a friend, make a mutual time that you're going to be calling each other, checking in on each other to make sure you're okay. Because the problem, though, is once we're at heat stroke, somebody's passed out, clearly they're not going to be able to help themselves. And same with that confusion piece. You know, that's the problem. What about? That's past the point. What about people with asthma? So asthma is a whole nother thing because heat, For some reason, in some individuals with asthma, it can actually worsen it. Typically, asthma is worsened by cold, but there are those asthmatics who are worse with heat. And COPD is something similar. You know, the sense of being breathless, you know, getting a bit short of breath, that can sometimes happen in heat exhaustion as well. Just feeling a little off. And the muscle cramps, the fact that that can happen in the abdomen throws people off as well. Remember that dehydration, that's not just pure water, nor is it pure salt. There's electrolytes that, are, that can be thrown off balance, and it's that electrolyte imbalance which causes those muscle cramps. And people don't always connect the dots. You know, they get muscle cramps in the abdomen, and they think they got some kind of diarrhea that's coming, or a vomiting that's going to come. Vomiting can be a sign of heat exhaustion. It can be a sign of heat stroke. So it's, it's important to keep these things in mind, that it's not straightforward necessarily what the symptoms are going to be. But that vomiting, that nausea, the dizziness, the confusion, very serious signs taken uh, as medical signs of needing
1: help. And uh, are you surprised by the death toll in British Columbia?
4: You can hear my sighing. (laughs) I'm sighing because I'm worried that the death toll is higher than what they now recognize. Death tolls are often lagging, you know, what you hear in the news, you know, because the people who are in their apartments who are helpless to do anything or change anything are not yet being counted. So it's very frightening. It's very concerning. And, you know, do we even have the energy and the power to keep up with the demand? So many buildings in Vancouver are not even air conditioned. And we know the heat rises. The higher you are, the harder it's going to be. to. You well, know, they don't because... usually need air
1: conditioning in yeah, British Columbia. Uh, Iris, is there anything you'd like to leave us with?
4: I think the main thing is this. Sweat works to keep the body cool, but only to a certain extent. When the sweat either runs out or it's not adequate and the heat is so much, watch out for the warning signs. Take them seriously. The nausea, the vomiting, the muscle cramps, which can be in the back, can be in the abdomen, the weakness that comes along with it. Those have to be taken as serious signs. Call for help. Make sure you connect with loved ones. Have them check in on you
1: regularly. Okay. Dr. Ivers-Gorfinkel, thank you so much for that.
4: Many thanks for having me, Libby.
1: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to have more on this. The city has some plans to help mitigate the effects of Heat waves throughout the summer. We'll be talking to Brad Ross, the uh, Chief Spokesman for Toronto. On the other side of the break, and again, if you have some questions or concerns or comments, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, fight back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. Yesterday, Rod Phillips, the new long-term care minister, made his first public appearance in that role and apologized for his government's failure in its pandemic response to the long-term care crisis.
3: Successive governments, including this one, failed residents, they failed families, uh, and they failed our staff. And on behalf of both past governments and the current government, I apologize for that. I think that's a necessary step so that we can take the action we need to do now to move forward.
1: Well, uh, as you noticed, for sure, he didn't forget to mention the failings of previous governments. Did that take away from the impact? He also announced loosened restrictions for nursing home residents and hinted at bringing in a whole new long-term care act, which brings me to the question, was the problem lax Laws? Or lacks enforcement. Now, Philip said he spent his first week talking to advocates and stakeholders, and we have some of them with us to get their impressions. We also want to hear from you, especially if you are a loved one are in long-term care Uh what do you think, 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 4740 And we begin this discussion with Jane Medes, staff lawyer and institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, and Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. Hello, and thanks for being with us.
4: Good afternoon,
1: Donna. Donna, are you there? Donna? Yes. Sorry. Good afternoon. (laughs) I'm sorry about that. Okay. And Donna, I gather that uh, the new
5: minister called you on uh, his first day. I yes, he did, Libby. And uh, I have to say, I was really encouraged by the outreach. Uh, Certainly uh, uh, expressed similar sentiments that he expressed yesterday in terms of his commitment to. Uh, turn the, the clock on this and move forward and take the necessary actions to fix the system and, and to work with his stakeholders on this. So uh, really encouraged by that immediate outreach.
1: Uh, Jane, he didn't call you, did he?
6: No, he didn't call me, and I have never spoken to uh, Merrilee Fullerton either. Uh-huh. What,
1: what do you make of the apology? Was that good enough?
6: Well, I mean, it's a start. I think that we're certainly seeing a different attitude um, with this minister, which is a hugely good start. Um, You know, uh, I think you bring up some good points around, you know, where was the issues? You know, I'm glad that they're taking responsibility. And, you know, moving forward, I'm really hoping that we can work with the ministry. uh, They're going to be doing, you know, new legislation and stuff. I think that, you know, I'm not sure that it's necessary, but, you know, I think there are tweaks that can be done to the current legislation, definitely, around the enforcement. But, you know, I think it's encouraging to move forward. We'll just have to see what ha- actually happens.
1: Um, yeah, tweaking the enforcement. Uh, Donna, do you think that the legislation needs to be changed, updated? Yeah,
5: I, we, we would say yes. Um, uh, one of the reasons uh, we, we struggled in the beginning of the pandemic was there were so many restrictions on how our employees could actually work and what they could do, what a nurse could do in a home Uh, I think if we're going to uh, look at how long-term care fits uh, within that broader continuum of care and living uh, from independence through to end of life and where we fit relative to, to hospitals and primary care, we do need to look at the legislation in that context. Uh, the, the minister also spoke about the need to look at how do we modernize our, our licensing and inspections and ensure that there is real accountability and uh, be very clear about uh, what the consequences will be of not uh, not meeting standards. So I, I would say we have a lot of work to do to modernize uh, and build out a system around the needs of the people we are here to serve. Uh, and... Uh, uh, so, so we we certainly do support uh, a revisiting of the legislation, but there are other actions too, including building out our human resources and and redeveloping and re- renewing the sector. There's there's a lot of work that has to be done.
1: Jane, uh, getting back to that, so we have laws now, uh, and, and there are presumably penalties. It's just that they're not put into effect. We had inspectors doing inspections by phone during the pandemic, uh, even though there were other frontline workers who were on the front lines. Uh, We had inspections cut back by the government. We had warnings to nursing homes, heads up, we're going to be inspecting you. Uh, You know, how does legislation help those things?
6: Well, I mean, you know, the inspection process is based upon the legislation. And, you know, one of the things that Philip talked about, you know, he called it an antiquated system. And, you know, this is actually a new system. It's probably probably the most robust in Canada, you know, with respect to the enforcement, um, how it was created, the methodology um, was there. They spent millions of dollars. And this was, you know, in You know, around 2010 when the legislation came in and a little bit beyond that because they weren't quite ready when the legislation came in. So this is not antiquated. Um, The problem is, is that there really isn't a lot of enforcement on it. They've never put in fines. Uh, The last government put in administrative monetary penalties, which were never enacted, so we don't have that. So, you know, it's really been a system where you have, you know, we need to change the penalty system. I agree with that because I don't think that there are consequences, you know, doing a written notice or voluntary plan of correction, even an order. I mean, people get orders reissued all the time and, you know, they've sort of learned, I think, that, you know, doesn't really matter because there isn't anything much beyond that unless they you know, really get bad, and then they do management orders and stuff. But the, there really isn't a lot of teeth in that legislation. We need I need to add teeth. The legislation itself, I think, um, doesn't need a lot of, I wouldn't think it needs a lot of tweaking. I was, you know, I was part of the process that helped to make the recommendations as to what would go into that legislation. Um, and, you know, Dawn is talking about changing around the staffing, and I'm not sure what she's talking about, Um, I suspect it has to do with what RNs can do and can't do. And, and, uh, you know, I would probably disagree with her on some of that staffing issue.
1: Right. So uh, I'm thinking that Jane is uh, saying that uh, probably nursing home operators want to give more latitude to uh, people with lower levels of training, PSWs, uh, or practical nurses versus RNs. Am I correct, Donna? Um,
5: No, no. Actually, we want... We want our our RNs to be able to work to their full scope of practice. So one of the challenges with the existing legislation is that it prescribes what a nurse can and cannot do, regulated health professionals, what a, what a uh, physiotherapist can do and uh, what a, what a pharmacist can do or can't do in long term care homes. And yet since 2010, the scope of practice of those professionals has actually expanded. And especially given the the constraints that we have on our regulated staff, one of the things that the emergency orders allowed us to do in this is allow nurses to do what they're allowed to do uh, under their scope of practice, uh, as opposed to what, what was prescribed in that 2010 legislation. So, we just want people to be able to, our professionals, to, to do what the professionals can do and have them really focus on care. And, and that's our priority is the health, and well-being, and care, but, but letting professionals do their job.
1: Now, to Jane's point, Uh, Donna, my understanding of a lot of the lack of enforcement uh, is we can't shut down any bad actors because where would these people go? There's such a limited capacity. And um, how does that fact change?
5: So we really need to look at um, how do do we support homes to be successful and, and, and where there are real issues. Let's let's focus on those issues and, and make sure too that we're focusing on uh, the
6: uh,
5: healthcare uh, issues. So, looking at the materiality of uh, a medication error versus someone uh, some of the more consumer oriented uh, measures. So we're, we're really interested in making sure that the, the whole system is successful. This is about our residents, and, and we want them all to thrive. But if we have homes that are our problems, then there has to be a due process. There has to be a way to deal with those. And and our members certainly are committed to ensuring that um, we're, we're all successful, but, but where there are bad actors, that bad actors are dealt with. Jane,
1: it seems to me that One of the big problems uh, when it came to the previous Minister Fullerton was that with the best of intentions, she couldn't get the bureaucracy to do what she wanted to do. And, And one of the big criticisms that I've heard is that. We were in an emergency in the pandemic, but the 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 bureaucracy was was still operating in the same way they did and with the same timelines in normal times. Uh, is that a fair criticism?
6: Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I think it, you know there there may be some validity to that. You know, I think that there were other issues during that time, um, but I think that the you know the the real issues really predated that, which was the um government's decision not to do the uh, the annual Rqi inspections which would have been the full inspections, and simply do the reactive inspections whether there were complaints or critical incidents that had already occurred um and you know not having enough staff and I mean they're definitely I think uh, Minister Phillips talked about um, hiring new staff um you know he, you know they they did hire new, new staff um, for you know, inspectors who was wrong, he, they did hire inspectors under the liberals direct standard. At one point, they added a hundred clearly not enough. And if we want to have a system that's going to work, um, we need to have the support for that system. And I think the inspection is part of the support because if it, you know, it can point out things, um, to homes that are going wrong, but clearly the inspection process really broke down, um, for whatever reason, uh, during, during the uh, pandemic for sure.
1: Uh- Turning now to uh, a today problem and something that we are going to be dealing with more in depth in the second half of the show. Uh, The minister was also asked about getting air conditioning into homes, some of which sweltered. The previous minister had promised uh, 83%. and uh, he admitted that that that's not happening. That's not happening right now. That uh, there are there's air conditioning in about sixty percent. Uh, what uh, would you say about that, Donna Duncan? I mean, we've seen in BC a deadly heat wave, and and it's pretty hot here too.
5: Well, yeah, Libby, and I'm thinking back to a year ago where where we were in a heat wave, and, and really, I, I think that's where some of the the public awareness really grew. Around these older homes uh, that were built in the 1970s that uh, didn't have the air conditioning, I, I would say we're, we're making progress. Are we there yet? Absolutely not. Uh, what we've been really working with on government is where are the real challenges? How do we how do we make sure we've got the the general cooling areas, but how do we make sure that the residents' rooms? are are, uh, comfortable uh, and that they're cooled and so government is working very closely with with those homes those older homes in particular where they're challenged with electrical load uh, where they just can't uh, they blow fuses every time they turn on an air conditioner so uh, we we've certainly identified that we need to have contingencies where we do go into uh, heat waves and where there are homes that are really struggling, are there contingencies? Are there other places where we may have to move residents to ensure that they can be in a cool environment? So uh, we're going to have to be really creative uh, to, to deal with this, uh, and we need some short-term strategies to get through today and, and uh, these hot days. But clearly, the number one priority has to be to redevelop these older homes as quickly as possible and uh, make sure that uh, we're we building to, to the standards and ensuring that the comfort and safety of
6: our residents, but also our staff too. Jane, is that good enough? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think the problem is is that this is a problem that is not a new problem. It wasn't a new problem last summer. I've been doing this job for 26 years and I'm complaining every year uh, we get complaints when there's a heat wave. Um, and one of the problems is, is that the government never changed the design standards. So even when they, created the new design standards in 2015, which are the standards that the homes are building to today, they do not require air conditioning in the room. And so even last summer when they were talking about rebuilding and stuff, I asked the ministry whether or not they were going to uh, be requiring the homes to put in air conditioning, and the answer was they had to build to the 2015 standards, which doesn't require air conditioning. Now, that's not to say that the homes aren't building air conditioning, because of course they can do additional things. But... Who knows? I don't know the answer to that. And no, I think uh, that I, are fairly new builds that are, that are hot, hot boxes in the rooms because they do
1: not have it. Well, yeah, I guess they just require air conditioning in common areas. That's correct. Uh, Donna, what's your view of that? Donna?
5: Have you lost her? I think Dane's right that as we, uh, you know, this has been an historic issue with these older buildings. Uh, with the, the newer design standards, they require cooling. And uh, what the government's doing right now is really monitoring some of these new cooling systems with, with the newer buildings to see what's working and what's not working. So that ongoing surveillance three three, and four times a day is, is, is is key for us uh, so that we know uh, where the real challenges are going to be and uh, to help inform those new design standards as well. To, to Jane's point, uh, what is it we're building for and how do we make sure that that what we're doing is working? So uh, I know Infrastructure Ontario is very much involved with their engineers. They've been meeting with homes, um, those who uh, are building now and planning to build to, to look at what remedies are going to be on a go-forward basis so that uh, we, we get this right.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Donna Duncan and Jane Meadis. I really appreciate your input.
6: Okay. Thanks, Thanks, Robin. Take care. Bye,
1: Okay. We are going to continue this conversation on long-term care and whether the government is turning over a new leaf with Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, who is a professor at Ontario Tech University who specializes in family caregiving and is an advocate for those in long-term care facilities. And Kathy Parks, whose father passed away at Orchard Villa in April of 2020. And together, they have founded Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards. Uh, welcome, ladies. And and Vivian, Rod Phillips' first call went to you, right? It sure did. That was an interesting day. <laughs> okay. And
7: what what did he have to say and how are you reacting to it? Hey, going from the last 15 months where, you know, I, I couldn't get a meeting with Mr. Fullerton to save my life, um, for, you know, going from that to receiving the first call post being sworn in was a very nice change. Um, don't get me wrong. You know, I, I still want to see action behind a nice gesture. So I really just had an opportunity to kind of say my piece and speak a lot about, you know, the things that I'm, I think are of most immediate importance to address. And one of those was thankfully, um, you know, during the press conference yesterday, uh, we now know about increased visitation coming. So that was very comforting. Um, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Kathy Parks, uh, you were yes. listening in. Um,
1: did his apology satisfy you?
8: It did. Uh, I wish that it had come from the previous minister, um, but it was nice to have it acknowledged. And an apology was nice. I've always said that's the first step. And now there needs to be action. Mm-hmm. So
1: uh, I, I I take it, Kathy, you think this is a good start. What action do you feel you need to see?
8: Um, well, I agree with Vivian that allowing more visitation time, but for me, I'd really like to see accountability. Um, the homes that really have struggled and not improved since Wave 1 do not um, should not be allowed to renew their licenses. They should be punished. You know what I mean? Uh, punished in, in a way that if they don't pull up their socks, they should lose their license. And I think that needs to be more more strict in all long-term care homes in
6: Ontario. Uh,
1: Vivian, the excuse uh, we always hear about that is that if if any long-term care homes are shut down, the residents will have nowhere to go because we have a, a capacity issue. Uh, what do you say to that?
7: Well, I think it's a very convenient, uh, you know, line of discourse that I imagine is probably promulgated by the for-profit sector here that wants to retain their ownership in this field despite failing miserably on the whole. So, you know, I I fail to buy into the rhetoric that we can't do better. I know that we could get municipalities involved, and we know from the evidence that municipalities by far and above have the best outcomes for resident care. Not only resident care, but the employment relations between the staff and the kinds of employment contracts we see in these facilities. They have less of a revolving door. They have less mortality. It's just a win-win to start really shifting over to a municipal model. And I don't see why without proper resources. And regardless, you're going to have to put money at this problem. We can't keep pretending that we can fix long-term care without a significant financial, you know, endowment, quite frankly. And the population is just aging more and more every single day. So this is going to hit ahead in about five years. And we need to start dealing with this now. So frankly, put your money where your mouth is. And let's start creating the kinds of changes we need.
1: Uh, Kathy Parks, uh, the minister said he wants to change the law to make to make for more enforcement. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm wondering, do you think the laws have to be changed, uh, you know, uh, What do you make of that? Because enforcement was a big
8: problem. Well, they're not enforcing the laws that are currently in place. Um, And I think that they need to start there because everything exists. But, you know, when you have a home and I'll, I'll use Orchard Villa because I'm very familiar with it. You know, since wave one, they've had five, six incident reports where they're still dealing with infection prevention and control. And every time they're getting a written warning and failing the next time. So they're not implementing the, the rules that are already there and the home thinks they can get away with it. So Well, they have been getting start,
1: away with it. Yeah,
8: mm-hmm. I would start there, enforcing what we have. And
1: uh, you're involved in a mass tort lawsuit. Uh, does this new start from the new minister, does, does that uh, affect that at all?
8: No, it doesn't. No, and I, I, the only thing that really affected that was Bill 218. It won't stop. Though the, the families from trying to get accountability, and I think that I feel very strongly that you know there needs to be an answer for what happens on all levels. Uh, Vivian, uh, do you think that
1: toughening up the laws, uh, laws on enforcement or penalties, will that do the trick?
7: Absolutely. And not just that, and I made this very clear in my conversation with Minister Phillips that not only do you need to put more money at hiring more inspectors and really beefing up the inspection regime, but again, written warnings do nothing. And I even told him, you know, think about it like if you got a written warning for a, a speeding ticket, like when does that ever change behavior versus if you got, you know, massive demerit points and a hefty thousand dollar ticket? I mean, it, <laughs>
1: good it, analogy. That's
7: what moves the needle. It does. You need to feel the financial pain in some way, shape, or form. And that's what these. You know, facilities, the largely for profit facilities, have just been getting away with. You gotta speak their language and, and you gotta hit them with hefty financial penalties. And I even advised him that, you know, the, the bill that Kathleen Wynn tabled right before she was replaced, you know, levied up to a hundred thousand dollars for repeat noncompliance. He said, All you gotta do is pass that. Just <laughs> just introduce that into the regulation and then start enforcing it because you've even we have interviews by several media sources that have actually spoken to these long-term care inspectors, and they themselves say, yes, if you hit them with financial penalties, that would go a long way to actually changing behavior. I'm, so why I'm, aren't you doing that?
1: I'm wondering about the model. What we saw during the pandemic in a number of cases is that hospitals were basically sent in to take over the management of a facility. Uh, Kathy, do you think that's that's a model perhaps for dealing with uh people who
8: keep breaking the rules absolutely i mean i know um sunnybrook and Whitby. Mm-hmm. they are still under um lakeridge health they they took over the license temporarily and i spoke with a woman who whose mother is in that home and she says they're doing fabulous so much improved from what it was so we need to start seeing things like that you know municipalities regions or um the local health unit coming in and taking over the license Hmm. Uh, vivian do you agree hundred percent, hundred percent. And that's,
7: and we have evidence, right? So every time we had these predominantly for-profit bad actors fail the COVID test, it was hospitals sent in nine times out of 10 to save the day. And, and, you know, like, I don't think they can suddenly, you know, immediately take over ownership, but can they take it over for a period of time while you are forcing these providers to actually undergo certain, you know, remediation steps that make amends and pay out the hefty financial penalties? Sure, why not?
1: Now, there's obviously a very big political aspect to this. And uh, obviously, the government realizes that this is a big problem for them and they had better fix it or look like they're fixing it before the next election. Kathy, what do you think about that aspect?
8: That's my biggest concern is I don't want this just to be a campaign promise. Um, it's fine that the new minister is coming out and making these statements. But, you know, the Wizard of Oz is still pulling all the strings and he hasn't done anything. Doug Ford hasn't done anything in the past 16 months. So I'm concerned um, that it's for show. I want to have faith in it. But after what's happened in the last year and a half, I have very little faith left. Uh, Vivian? no question
7: about it and i'll tell you right now the number one criticism and trust me i got i got hit up by my long-term care community when i posted that i had received a call from rod phillips that you know this was performative this is just a way to buy votes and trust me the families are very on edge they're not what they have been through it's completely understandable that there is a a very serious and potentially irreparable breach of trust between the government and these families i mean i you know
5: if i were one of them
7: I, i there'd be no trust for me there either um so I, but I'm, you know, also the kind of person that wants to give everyone a chance. He's been in the role a week. You know, I, I'm, I'm being patient to a certain extent. And, and if I don't start to see more changes, this is a good first step. Um, then, then you know, I, I'm going to be resuming the same vigor that I had under the previous minister.
1: Okay. Well, uh, we will, of course, be checking back to see what, if anything, Changes in the near term. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos and Kathy Parks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. We are going to take a quick break. And in the back half of the show, we are going to be dealing uh, with these terrible and dangerous heat waves. Uh, in BC, what's going on there is beyond comprehension. We've seen the hottest temperatures ever recorded in this country. Think about that. And of course, the people affected mostly are seniors who live alone in apartments without air conditioning. It's an issue here. Yesterday, the humidics hit 40. And we are going to start by talking to uh, Environment Canada's senior climatologist,